Podcasting from Oregon in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, welcome to Eye on Global Politics. Sit back, relax, and get ready to explore some of today's most pressing international issues. Now, here is your host, international relations scholar, author, and founder of the International Law Education Group, Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. In some parts of our world, religious intolerance remains. This is a serious issue, whether it be intolerance between religions or state intolerance toward one or more specific religions. In these countries, the situation in regard to religious freedom resembles early modern Europe. In societies with established religious freedom, religious toleration may appear to have finished its task. But in such societies, new challenges arise. For example, the free exercise exemption is controversial. Welcome to episode six, Freedom of Religion and Free Exercise Exemptions. I'm your host, Paul F.J. Aranyas. As stated in my last episode, I recommend the book, Religion and Human Rights, an introduction edited by John Witt Jr. and M. Christian Green as an introductory text to which I will be referring during relevant podcasts. I want to acknowledge Stephen D. Smith's chapter on freedom of conscience, which I have utilized in this episode. Let's say a government passes a law to regulate conduct by using a rationale based on legitimate secular goals. But the law results in encumbering some people's exercise of their religion. For example, a law may forbid something that a particular religion requires, such as using a drug as part of worship. Or the law might require individuals to take part in actions that their religion prohibits, such as serving in the military. This type of conflict was evident early in U.S. history. The Quakers objected to aiding war or taking oaths in court. And decades of similar controversies have followed these objections. The laws that can conflict with religious values are secular. That is, they are directed toward the general citizenry. Although these laws are religiously neutral, they may conflict with an individual's religious belief and practice. Therefore, these secular laws are different from the intolerant laws that were explicitly motivated by religion and which freedom of conscience initially addressed. The question then is, should believers be exempted from the law? The classical rationales for freedom of conscience that we discussed in episode 5 offer only obscure backing for free exercise exemptions from general laws. As you recall from the previous episode, John Locke, the English political philosopher, and others argued that secular rulers do not possess the competence to adjudicate between truth and fallacy in religious affairs, and thus should not enforce religious orthodoxy. This argument was applicable 
when governments were clearly taking measures on a religious basis to enforce religious orthodoxy. But the laws that conflict with free exercise exemptions, such as laws requiring military conscription, prohibiting certain drugs, and forbidding discrimination, have not been enacted on religious grounds because contemporary secular governments assert no religious competence. In the second rationale, voluntariness and futility, John Locke, Madison, and others argue that God is only pleased by religion that is sincere and freely chosen. This is the only kind of religion that leads to salvation, they said. Religious conformity is futile, they argued. But modern secular governments do not aim for theological conformity. Their aims are secular. It is the third rationale, dual jurisdiction, that appears to lend some support for free exercise exemptions. Madison stated, It is the duty of every man to render to the Creator such homage and such only as he believes to be acceptable to him. Therefore, if the government creates a barrier or a hindrance to carrying out such primary obligations to the governor of the universe, then it seems that the government officials have a convincing rationale to steer clear of burdening the exercise of religion, even for secular aims. In contemporary times, John H. Garvey, president of the Catholic University of America, argues that religious rationales offer the only reasonable grounds for providing particular legal protection for the free exercise of religion. Objections have arisen in academic and legal discourse based on the idea that religious justifications are widely viewed as implausible or inadmissible and that public justifications are supposed to be secular. However, this is ironic because the authority of public secularism is often derived from the same responsibility to religious freedom or non-establishment of religion that the classical religious rationales work to guarantee. In a way, the dual jurisdiction rationale and other religious arguments have functioned to neutralize themselves. Therefore, classical freedom of conscience rationales may substantiate freedom of conscience in its classical sense pertaining to religious toleration. And the outcome of a guarantee to the freedom of conscience gained through voluminous writings and at times violence can then be called upon to substantiate conscience-based exceptions to general secular laws. However, one would now claim that this has led to ambiguity, and the argument has subtly resulted in changing the definition of freedom of conscience. In the United States, the issue of free exercise exemptions has normally been dealt with under the First Amendment Free Exercise Clause. However, scholars disagree on whether the authors of that clause intended to involve such exceptions. The U.S. Supreme Court's response has occurred in three stages. The first stage was in the late 19th century, when the issue of free exercise exemption first came before the court. Its answer was that the Free Exercise Clause protects belief, but not behavior. 
Mormons, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, were denied the right to engage in polygamy, even if failing to engage in the practice would result in damnation. They could believe what they wanted, but they couldn't do whatever they wanted. The free exercise clause did not extend to conduct. The second stage was in the mid-20th century, when the Supreme Court started to put forth that the free exercise clause afforded some protection for religious conduct. This led to the 1963 case of Sherbert versus Werner, which resulted in a compelling interest test. To review, the government must have a compelling interest and an overriding justification to limit the free exercise of a person's religion and not able to achieve its objective in any less burdensome way. The court stated that if a law burdens an individual's exercise of religion, then that person should be exempted from compliance unless the government has a compelling or overriding justification and is unable to carry out its objective in any less burdensome way. 1990s saw the case of Employment Division versus Smith, which occurred in Oregon. It became known as the Peyote case. The Employment Division denied a fired employee unemployment insurance benefits because he had used peyote as part of a religious ceremony during his time off. Here, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Employment Division and decided to forego the compelling interest test. The court ruled that if the law was aimed at the general public and religiously neutral, then free exercise exemptions were not required. The Supreme Court stated, It is a permissible reading of the free exercise clause to say that if prohibiting the exercise of religion is not the object of the law, but merely the incidental effect of a generally applicable and otherwise valid provision, the First Amendment has not been offended. To make an individual's obligation to obey such a law contingent upon the law's coincidence with his religious beliefs, except where the state's interest is compelling, permitting him, by virtue of his beliefs, to become a law unto himself, contradicts both constitutional tradition and common sense. To adopt a true compelling interest requirement for laws that affect religious practice would lead towards anarchy. Constitutionally, the court appeared to leave room for a couple of exemptions, allowing subsequent courts to guard the exercise of religion. For instance, the judge, now Justice Samuel Alito, ruled in favor of Muslim police officers who worked in a police department with a no-beard policy, and the Muslim officers objected to the requirement. Alito reasoned that if medical exemptions to shaving existed, Religious officers who have obligations to wear beards must also be excused from shaving. Going back to the Peyote case, the decision to rule in favor of the employment division was very unpopular, and this resulted in Congress and state legislators in a partially unsuccessful attempt to enact a compelling interest test as part of statutory law. While the specific case of peyote use for Native Americans' worship has been resolved through legislation, the Supreme Court has rejected attempts by legislators 
to enact a compelling interest test via statutory law. Under international law, freedom of conscience is protected by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the subsequent International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the ICCPR, which is a binding treaty. Article 18 of the ICCPR states, everyone shall have the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. And this right includes the right to manifest his religion or belief in worship, observance, practice, and teaching. And that freedom to manifest one's religion or beliefs may be subject only to such limitations as are prescribed by law and are necessary to protect public safety, order, health, or morality, or the fundamental freedoms of others. While these valuable documents may appear to offer strong protections on the surface, states may have too much latitude. I will explain. As in Sherbert versus Werner's compelling interest test, which was somewhat deceptive, international law is subject to limitation clauses that provide governments significant latitude to impede these rights in defense and in regard to other public interests. One analysis said that the Human Rights Committee mandated with implementing and interpreting the International Covenant led the author of the analysis to conclude that although the committee's language is often expansive and affirming in practice, the committee gives little protection to religious freedom. Perhaps the most abiding impression of an examination of the work of the committee is that freedom of religion is either expressly or by implication viewed as more of a problem than as an ambition, something which, although doubtless a good thing in principle, is to be viewed with caution. In some instances, the UN Human Rights Committee has ruled for individuals claiming their right to freedom of religion was violated, thereby reaching a different conclusion than the European Court of Human Rights, which deferred to the justifications given by the state without a reasonable inquiry into the legitimacy of the rationales. We will discuss some particular cases that fit this description in depth in future episodes. The issue of conscientious objection remains contentious, both in the United States and globally. We encounter this in numerous situations, from healthcare professionals whose faith call them not to participate in the practice of abortion, pharmacists opposed to the use of contraceptives, refusing to provide them to customers, to issues surrounding same-sex marriage and whether churches should be exempted from performing or recognizing such unions. In Canada and European countries, controversies have occurred from regulations prohibiting hate speech to religious condemnation of homosexual conduct. Other areas of dispute include religious proselytism. Some religions, notably Christian denominations, instruct that there is an obligation of spreading the faith to non-believers, but the objects of such proselytism may view it as an assault on their own beliefs. If there is a restriction on proselytism, a potential discord between law and conscience is clear. In 2009, such disputes led to a group of Christian leaders and scholars issuing a declaration called the Manhattan Declaration. Its subtitle was A Call for Christian Conscience. The signatories critiqued a growing body of case law that has paralleled the decline in respect for religious values in the media 
the academy, and political leadership, resulting in the restrictions on the free exercise of religion. We view this as an ominous development, not only because of the threat to individual liberty guaranteed to every person, regardless of his or her faith, but because the trend also threatens the common welfare and the culture of freedom on which our system of republican government is founded. The Declaration concluded, We will fully and ungrudgingly render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but under no circumstances will we render to Caesar what is God's. As we can see, the conflict between general laws in a secular state and freedom of religious conscience provides fertile ground for controversies and disputes. In our next episode, we will take this discussion to an even deeper level and discuss the partial but problematic convergence of conscience and autonomy in an era of secular equality. You've been listening to Ion Global Politics with Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you will share our International Law Education Group web address, ileducationgroup.org, with your family, friends, and colleagues. Don't forget to check out ionglobalpolitics.com for future articles and podcasts, and to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We look forward to welcoming you to another episode of Ion Global Politics.